Before we get started, I have a quick favor. I've been self-funding the Finding Genius podcast for five years now. I've done over 3,000 episodes. And as you can see on YouTube, we're up over a million views on the channel, which is fantastic. The next thing I really want to push on is to get up to 10,000 subscribers. Because once we do, we'll be able to put a donate button and uh, we'll be able to solicit donations uh, to help keep the podcast running and to also get the Finding Genius Foundation moving along. We have a big project studying anxiety, depression, and PTSD, and working on a product to help people overcome these problems uh, because I've seen them explode recently after the, uh, you know, the last two years of the whole virus situation. So if you would, please subscribe to the podcast. That would help us tremendously. Give us a thumbs up. And check in the description for Buy Me a Coffee. It's about five bucks. If you could buy me a coffee, I'd really appreciate it. It would help keep the channel going, and I love coffee. Thank you. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius Podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I'm talking to Cassie Reyes. Uh, we're going to speak about uh, her experience as a registered nurse, including work as a postpartum nurse, a doula, and a lactation consultant. And she's also a new mother. So congrats to her. And uh, we'll talk about uh, her work. So Cassie, thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is great. Well, tell me about your uh, your work in uh, you know the various aspects of, uh, I guess I could, I don't know if the umbrella is just, I guess, birth and child rearing, or what is it called? The whole um, birthing experience? Yeah. So my specific uh, specialization within nursing is human lactation. So breastfeeding or any families who are wanting to give human milk to their babies. And I am a registered nurse, but also did um, a lot of additional training to become a lactation consultant. And right now I work with families both virtually and locally. I live in Maine, so I can work one-on-one -on -one with families virtually if they're not located locally. And I do courses online and I also have a YouTube channel where I have videos, lactation specific videos available to families all over the world. So what are, what are some of the common problems you run into that people need consultation on? Um, some of the most common things are when a parent goes home and they're having troubles with either when the baby is latching and trying to feed, that they're in a lot of pain or problems uh, with the baby losing 
too much weight after going home from the hospital, babies not gaining enough weight. Yeah, those are the most common. And then we see uh, a lot of problem solving going on with that. Um, tongue tie is a very common problem with babies feeding, which is where they can't move their tongue properly because it's kind of anchored to the bottom of their mouth and it causes a lot of feeding problems. So that's a pretty common problem that we are, are called to help families through. How much are babies supposed to add or, or lose? Is it common for them to lose any weight? And, you know, what are the dynamics around that? What are the numbers? Yeah. So we do expect babies to lose some weight after birth. And that is really important for parents to know when they're starting out. Babies lose typically about, we want to see them lose less than 5% in their first 24 hours of life and no more than 10% total weight loss. We expect them to start to regain their weight um, and be back to birth weight by two weeks of life. Okay. So that means what, a, a half a pound and probably no more than that for average birth weight? Yeah, it really depends on how much the baby weighs, but yeah, 5% if it's a eight pound baby, 10% of that. So 0.8, but babies are born really waterlogged and parents get a lot of, sometimes get a lot of IV fluids during delivery. And so in the first couple of days, babies are just kind of peeing off or pooping a lot of those fluids. And so we expect them to have that initial weight loss. And it's usually not a, a matter of concern unless it surpasses that 10%. Okay. So has the mother gotten through the colostrum initial feeding by this time or what's the dynamics in the breastfeeding? Yeah. So the colostrum is the first like three to five days. So I'm glad you brought that up because a lot of parents get really nervous in the first couple of days that their baby's born when they don't see an abundance of milk flowing. And it's really important for parents to know that it does take time for that abundance of milk to come in. It takes about three to five days where we're seeing that colostrum, which is a thick, sticky, uh, for those of you who don't know what colostrum is, thick, sticky milk that helps coat the baby's stomach initially and gives them lots of good antibodies and protection and helps line their gut. Their stomachs are about the size of a grape when they're born, and within the first three to five days, as their stomach starts to expand, the parent's milk will start to come in more abundantly, and we'll start to, to see um, more of what parents are expecting it to look like when, when their milk is in. Okay, so um, is breastfeeding more difficult at the colostrum stage versus the, I don't know what you call the milk after that, but are there <laughs> dynamics of breastfeeding, or is it harder at one stage or another? It can be really difficult in that colostrum phase because A, it's difficult for parents to trust that their baby is getting enough to eat. And that's where we see a lot of parents doubting their body, doubting that their baby is getting enough and they may introduce a bottle of formula early on. It can also just be difficult because the parent and the baby are just learning how to do the proper latch, how to get the baby to feed. And the baby has to work extra hard to get that thick, sticky colostrum out. Whereas once the mature milk comes in and the parent and the baby have had a little bit more time to practice the latch, the mature milk comes in, baby's a little bit happier during the feeding, a little bit more satisfied. The parent's a little bit more confident because they're seeing the milk and hearing the gulps. So yeah, I would say the first couple of days is, is certainly the hardest to get through. And I always encourage parents, if you can get through the early days, it does get easier. So what is latching is when the baby, what, uh, 
is it something that the parent feels like, oh, okay, now the you know the milk is flowing? Or you know, I don't know. If, well, I guess you have breastfed, but what, what, you know, I haven't. Yeah. <laughs> what does it feel like? Yeah, you know, I forgot to ask my wife. But what, what does it feel like when the baby is not latching versus latching? Is it a different feeling where you can tell? And what happens? Yeah. So when babies latch, it, we're basically just talking about how they're attaching to the breast tissue. Um, we don't want to see a baby who's just latching to the tip of a nipple. That's going to cause a lot of pain. And what we're looking for is for the parent to not feel pain when baby is latched. It's called breastfeeding, chest feeding. It's not nipple feeding. We don't want to feel chomping or pain when the baby is latched. The parent should be feeling a strong pulling sensation um, because the baby should have taken in enough tissue to not just be chomping down on the tip of the nipple. So there is a common myth that feeding hurts, that you just have to kind of suffer through it in the beginning. And that is a misconception if we're able to get a good deep latch and there's nothing else going on um, concerning baby's anatomy. The parents shouldn't be feeling a lot of pain in the beginning and it should just feel like that strong pulling. They might not feel uh, the milk rushing down in the beginning and they may never feel the milk rushing down, but just should be a relatively comfortable experience, especially after that first week or so. Yeah, I wouldn't want anyone chomping on my nipple. That would hurt. Yeah, right? Not fun. In terms of uh, frequency of feeding, like I remember my wife was told feed every four hours, but then her pediatrician said, the baby's hungry, feed the baby. And that yes. seemed to work better for her. But what, what recommendations do you see, which are helpful and not so helpful? Yeah, so we want to see an average of eight to 12 feedings in a 24-hour period. Um, that averages out to about every two to three hours, but just like your pediatrician said, which I'm happy that you had a pediatrician that gave you good advice, you don't have to make a baby wait to feed. So if a baby's showing hunger cues, hunger cues are when a baby might start like sticking out their tongue and moving their head side to side, sucking on their, their fingers or their fists, just like bobbing their head around um, when they're in, in the parent's arms, kind of looking for the nipple. Those are all hunger cues. And when we're seeing that, those are the early cues that let us know baby's hungry and we want to go ahead and offer them. We don't need to wait. Um, we don't need to be timing it to like, oh, it hasn't been two to three hours yet, so you can't eat right now. I'm just on demand. We call that on-demand feeding. That way we're meeting the baby's biological needs and, and following those early cues because by the time a baby is crying, that's a later hunger cue. And they're going to be hangry at that point, and they're just not going to be uh, patient and, and willing to work on that deep latch. So we might be more likely to see painful shallow latching if we wait for the, um, for the later hunger cues, like crying. And uh, babies do get more milk transfer when they have a deeper latch as well. So it's not just about comfort for the parent either. It's about how effective the baby is, is emptying the milk. So is the baby putting like the whole nipple and some of the areola in its mouth or like what does a, a good latch look like? What is it? What is it in its mouth? What is it sucking on? What parts? Yeah. So the areola, um, for those of you who don't know, the areola is a dark area around the nipple. And what we want to see is that the baby gets most of the areola in the mouth. Obviously, there are different size areolas. And if you have a larger areola, it might not be completely in the baby's mouth. But the nipple shouldn't land where the baby's hard palate is towards the front of the mouth. The nipple should be touching back towards the back of the baby's mouth where the soft palate is. 
And therefore the baby's lips would be up and over most of the parent's areola. The lips should be flanged out and looking like fish lips. Um, and you wouldn't see it from the outside, but the baby's tongue should cup underneath the nipple instead of the gums kind of chomping down on the nipple, the tongue comes out and cups underneath to make that more comfortable. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I remember my wife used to say too that if, if her breast, I guess, was inflamed or the milk was stuck, that the baby was like the best breast pump in the world. You know, it beat any breast pump to get <laughs> yes. the ducts unclogged. Absolutely, yes, yes. Babies have such strong suction compared to any pump, even our hospital-grade pumps. Babies are so much more efficient. Uh, and I always kind of explain it to the parents that I work with that um, it's not just like they're sucking through a straw. They're actually using their whole face and so many facial muscles and their jaw to massage the milk out. And that kind of motion that they're doing and they're doing a wave like motion with their tongue. It's really hard to replicate with a breast pump. So babies are definitely more efficient at getting the milk out, especially when well, anytime, but when we're experiencing clogged ducts or any sort of engorgement, the baby can be the best treatment for that. So I guess when, when W.C. Field said there's a sucker born every minute, maybe he was referring to babies. <laughs> but it is amazing that they're, that, you know, it makes sense. I mean, it's nature. They're going to be the best at it than, than any mechanical device, which is really funny to think. It's amazing, you know? Yeah, no, exactly. It's really incredible. It's really incredible how they were designed to, to eat that way and do it as efficiently as, as they should. So when, when babies are born, are they checked for tongue tie or do they just, you know, just when the mother tries to breastfeed, she may go, uh-oh, something's wrong, and then it's found out. And how do you check for such a thing? Uh, some pediatricians will check baby. I mean, it's something we're always looking for. The thing with tongue tie is that it might not always be obvious. And sometimes a pediatrician might just see one of the really obvious anterior tongue ties that you can just see and say, yep, there it is. Um, some tongue ties are posterior, uh, the tissue that's, that's tied or tethered is further back in the mouth and we may have a harder time seeing it and we might not pick up on it until the parent starts to describe problems with feeding, like uh, painful latching or the baby isn't gaining weight appropriately, popping on and off of, of the breast or chest a lot, um, leaking milk while they're feeding, clicking, leaking milk while they're bottle feeding. Um, if we're hearing a parent report any of those, then the lactation consultant will probably be checking for a tongue tie. Funny enough, uh, as, a, as a professional who's not allowed to diagnose, we can't actually diagnose tongue tie, but we would write all our findings to the pediatrician um, or refer the parent to a pediatric dentist and, and hope that they would, it's a multi- multidisciplinary approach that we have with tongue tie. So they would probably be referred out to see if they needed to have any sort of revision done to, to help with that situation. That's terrible. So you've been tongue tied and you can't tell the doctor that there's tongue tie. Exactly. And my daughter actually had a tongue tie and, and we did have to, we did have to manage that. So it was not fun. We had every lactation issue that we had every lactation issue that you can imagine really. So I feel like, ugh, an even more knowledgeable lactation consultant after having breastfed my daughter and continuing to breastfeed her. So would the surgery have to be done or had this tongue tie get resolved? It's a minor surgery. So it's done in about 30 seconds. It can be done by an ENT or by a pediatric dentist. Some people do it with 
scissors and they just trim the tissue. Some people do it with laser. There's a couple schools of thought on which is better, but really whatever the professional is trained in and is best able to, and feels most comfortable in um, performing the procedure is really the best option. So there are two ways to do it, scissors, laser. It's a quick little 30 second either clip or trim with the laser. And then the recovery is a little bit the longer part because you are likely to have the parents doing some exercises, some stretching exercises with the tongue, some massage to keep that wound from healing from the inside out. We want it to heal from the outside in and prevent reattachment. So we'd be having some exercises, probably some oral rehabilitation for a baby who has maybe learned to suck quote unquote, the wrong way, depending on how long they have been working through that tongue tie. So the procedure itself is pretty quick and almost painless, but the recovery, the exercises, and a lot of the work that goes into getting the baby able to use their new tongue appropriately and effectively at the, at the breast or for feeding can be, can be more challenging for families. Yeah, how long of a window does a mother have to either successfully breastfeed or, you know, where they tend to give up or where they give up, there's no going back type situation. Oh, it's so funny because I think that parents see it a lot of times as a black and white situation. Like I gave up and so we're done or I'm only exclusively pumping now because they get to a point when you're in your postpartum and you're exhausted and there's so many other things going on. It's not just baby feeding. And you get overwhelmed and sometimes you need to take a, st- a step back and maybe that's the right decision for your mental health. Um, maybe exclusive pumping is a great option at the time, but it doesn't have to be all or nothing. So sometimes I'll encourage people like, yeah, exclusive pumping might work for a couple of days or a couple of weeks for you. And then if you really want it to go back to trying latching, it's never too late. And families, um, relactation is a huge thing. and and parents world right now especially um, with the pandemic a lot of parents decided to relactate who had stopped breastfeeding or stopped lactation months ago um, can actually relactate so it's really never too late to keep trying well that's good to know i mean does the mother's uh if if she doesn't pump though let's say she's trying to do formula feeding is the Mm -hmm. window on which she could relactate much much shorter Yes, it's always better. Uh, you would have a better rate of success if you had breastfed, if you had lactated. The longer you've lactated um, for the mo- more time that you've lactated in the past, you're going to have better luck. And that's a great point with the pumping. If you are offering formula and your goal is to offer human milk, you always want to be replacing any feeds that the baby would have been doing by stimulating the body with a pump because our bodies work on a system of supply and demand. So every time that a baby or a pump is stimulating the body or the nipple, the brain is receiving signals to produce milk. So if we skip a feeding or pumping session, we're essentially telling the body to slow down production. So anytime that your baby would have been eating and and you're offering a bottle, you would want to pump to replace that stimulation and protect your milk supply. Um, during the, uh, you know, when I heard on the news, there's been a big baby formula shortage. Um, mm-hmm. did you have clients come into you saying, oh no, we switched to formula. What do we do? Can we relactate or, you know, what happened with that dynamic? 
yeah, I had a lot of, we saw a lot of that going on. And I also, um, I have a video specifically on YouTube about relactation and I had so many more views on that on that video during this time of the formula shortage and so many comments and parents reaching out about just questions about, is it too late to relactate? Yeah, there was a lot of interest in, in relactation during that. And also I think another important thing that we in the lactation world have been trying to do because the formula shortage is still ongoing is encouraging parents who do intend to provide their babies with human milk is to take a class while they're still pregnant so they know what to expect. So they set themselves up for success and know how to protect their milk supply if things don't go as they uh, ideally wish it would go right after their baby's born. Because breastfeeding and lactation are natural, but they're not, they're not always easy. And a lot of people do face struggles in the beginning. So if they're able to take a class and, and set up more realistic expectations and just be more prepared for things um, and protect their milk supply from from the beginning that's a really great way to hopefully support them through through the potential of, of facing issues during the formula shortage yeah what does that mean protect their milk supply it sounds like breastfeeding supply chain issues somehow what, what does that mean <laughs> yeah so kind of like what i mentioned about the pumping the stimulation replacing what the baby would have done we need to protect our quote unquote supply chain of breast milk. So if every time that a baby or the pump is stimulating the body, we're telling the body to produce milk. And the more we stimulate, the more milk we're going to make. But the less we stimulate, if we start to back off on pumping or if we skip like overnight feeds, we can see a decrease in the production of milk. Um, also for families, there are occasionally medical reasons that a parent might have to give formula after birth. But when we do see the introduction of formula, we would want to introduce some pumping as well to, pr to protect that milk supply so that because the baby might be full for longer off of the formula and the body, the parent's body isn't getting the signals to produce milk for that feeding, we want to replace that stimulation and tell the body, yes, we actually do still need to make this milk while we're having to supplement the baby so that we keep up that milk production. So what's a, I don't know, what are, what, I guess if you rank the problems that uh, women have in terms of breastfeeding, which problems happen and when, you know, like what happens like in the first day, what happens maybe a few days or a week out, et cetera. Okay. Yeah. I would say day one. The baby is going to be really sleepy and not usually know what they're doing. So a lot of times baby will latch great as soon as they're born because it's just kind of innate reflexes. They know how to get on there. They eat. And then after that, like golden hour, which is when baby's first born, they do skin to skin. They might do some latching. After that first couple of hours, baby gets really sleepy for 24 hours, might not do great latching. Um, and the parents start to worry that their baby isn't going to get enough to eat. And so latching is probably the number one issue. Getting baby to latch at all is the number one issue for the first couple of days. And if the baby does latch, uh, painful latching in the early days is probably the most common problem. And then I would say around day three to five, which is typically when parents leave the hospital, if they have a hospital birth and the milk starts to come in, the major issue that is faced is engorgement. So when the milk does come in, 
um, the parent might experience that the breast or chest is overly full, hard, um, the milk won't come out because everything's just too swollen. And managing that can be really tricky if you don't know ahead of time to expect that and how to, how to deal with it. Those two initial challenges that almost every family faces, then we start to get into the more like particular problems that families might have with like, okay, we got through those early days and the problems that were to be expected, but now it's still painful. It's not getting better. Um, that's when we start to look at things like tongue tie, or we might start to see undersupply, oversupply, weight loss, um, baby might get jaundice and be having more feeding issues. So that's when we start to see the more complex issues start to show up. What about uh, like the set and setting for breastfeeding? You know, my, my wife would say like when she would breastfeed that she would like sit and relax and watch TV and stuff. And she would get mm -hmm. very tired. Like it would almost put her to sleep. I guess oxytocin was being released or something. Um, what's important about the set and setting so people can successfully breastfeed? Obviously, if they're stressed, I would think the baby's going to feel it and not want to latch. So what do they do? Yeah, so relaxing as much as possible, setting up a place at home where you feel comfortable. And some people feel more comfortable if they're alone um, in the nursery. Some people feel more comfortable in the living room surrounded by family. So however you feel the most comfortable, um, some people find that that having a baby blanket near them and having the smell of the baby and having pictures of their baby around, being in a dark room, just anything that can relax them helps with the milk letdown, which is um, the reflex that we have that our milk goes from the back of the breast where it's made towards the nipple. Um, yeah, just relaxation helps with, like you said, that oxytocin release. Oxytocin is the hormone responsible for milk ejection. So milk being released from the body. And it's also known as the love hormone. So when we are having that oxytocin release, we're both having that bonding experience with our baby and that bonding hormone also in turn releases the milk and, and allows for more flow and, and more successful feeding or pumping if you're pumping. So do women feel like a fullness against their chest and then the milk fullness feeling moves forward? as the letdown occurs? Is that what happens? It's a little bit different for everyone, but some people do feel fullness. Some people feel tingling. Some people it can feel almost painful um, in the beginning. And some people don't feel their letdown at all. So it's very individual, but that those are sort of the ways that people have, have explained it, like tingling, a fullness. And some people just don't feel anything, but you may hear that the baby is just swallowing, swallowing, swallowing more frequently. And you'll know that that you're having a letdown or you may notice that you're leaking on the other side when the baby's latched on one side. Yeah, I think I remember one of my kids, like their, their mouth would move very fast for a few seconds, then it would stop. And then it would move <laughs> very fast, stop. You know, they would do like interesting things or sometimes they would like <laughs> squirm around and almost like go upside down and wriggle all over the place. Oh my like, gosh, ah, yes, yes, the gymnastics. <laughs> Where'd that face now? The gymnastics start when they're like, like five months and above, they're just like squirming and, and trying to turn upside down while they're feeding. <laughs> so wait, wait, why do you think that is? Is that a good sign that they're just relaxed or is it they're bored or what do you think it is? Just developmentally, they're so interested in everything going on around them that like even just someone walking into the room and talking will distract them, like whip around and see what's going on. Like they want to know everything. Developmentally, they're taking everything in at that point. So 
a distracted child can make it difficult too. So for older babies, it can be really good to go to that dark room or go to the nursery where there are less less distractions and and just have a quiet space where we can focus on feeding and then go back to all the fun things happening with the rest of the family. Okay, that makes sense. So how long until someone's like, quote unquote, out of the woods? Do most of the problems happen in the first week or so? or, Or what's the window? I think generally the most of the issues happen in the first couple of weeks. In general, I think if people can survive that first couple of weeks, it does get easier after that. Um, in my case, it took four months. That's very unusual. It can take it can take a long time if you're working through complex things like tongue tie, like we were. But most people are usually quote unquote out of the woods. I would say the first couple of weeks are the worst. If you can make it through the first couple of weeks, it should get easier from there. Do moms have to like fight against feeling like a failure if it doesn't work right away, and does that make it harder? You know, it's really, it's really hard because I feel like this topic is so emotional for parents because it's just the way you feed your baby and you're so worried and all you want to do is knowing that your baby's being fed and being nourished. And it's also, you may have set these really high expectations for yourself to be an exclusive breastfeeder, give your child exclusively human milk. And a lot of times parents feel like a failure when they do have to give formula or when they do have to do some pumping or be an exclusive pumper because their baby just can't latch. So there is that factor where parents feel very uh, guilty about any deviation from their ideal plan for feeding their baby. And my goal as a lactation consultant is just to help them, um, you know, reach their goals, but feel confident in when, when, the road has to change, make a decision that works for their family and feel good and relaxed and confident about that. Like We tried everything we could. Um, we can always come back to this, but right now this is what your baby needs to be fed and how can we deviate a little bit right now, but get you where you want it to be with your goals in the long run. Okay. Does anyone, uh, does anyone pump and mix in, you know, pumped milk with formula? I don't know if I've ever heard of that, but that would be a way, I guess, of still you know, giving the baby of you and also good nutrition. But if it has to do formula, it has to do it. But you can, I guess, mix the two or bulk it up. Does anyone do that? Yeah, so it's actually not recommended to mix the two in the same bottle because we want, if there is human milk available, we want to make sure that the baby gets all of that. So if we were to mix in a larger quantity of formula, we might not and the baby doesn't finish the bottle, we might not know how much of the human milk the baby got. Um, But yes, many families do have to do mixed feedings where they'll give human milk and then have to supplement the additional part of a feeding with some formula. So topping off that, that human milk feed with some formula, just to make sure the baby's getting enough volume. And that might be the case if the parent's milk hasn't come in yet, and we're concerned about weight loss, or if the parent is having issues with low supply, there are a number of reasons why we might be doing mixed feedings or even just personal preference. And there's nothing wrong with that either, if that's your goal. And any amount of human milk that a baby is getting, they're still going to get all the benefits from that human milk. So any amount that we can give them is great. And then if we need to supplement them for other reasons with a little bit of formula afterwards, that's okay too. Yeah, well, it's good people do that. Yeah. Um, what other what other techniques are important? Like I, I think I, I guess it's all coming back 
I mean, like the, <laughs> the, the lactation consultant told my wife to hold the baby kind of like a football instead of like putting the baby, I guess, across you, but like the other way to feed is are there are certain positions that work better that people can try if one doesn't work, the other one's a problem. Yeah, there are several positions um, for a newborn. The ones that are more uh, parent-led where the baby's shoulders and head are more supported are always ones that I tend to recommend in the beginning because babies um, might not have the neck control yet to get themselves on there and um, another like a position where the baby's head might just be relaxed in their elbow. But like you said, a football hold, a cross cradle hold where the arms coming across and supporting the baby across the parent's body are really good for a newborn. A football hold is great for a parent who may have had a cesarean delivery because the baby would be kind of wrapped around the parent's side instead of lying on their abdomen and it helps take pressure off um, their, their surgical incision. And then as babies get older, parents may find that positions that are more relaxed, like side lying while they're lying beside their baby in bed might be more relaxing, especially for those middle of the night feedings. Um, rather than having to get up and set up all their pillows and everything that might uh, change over to more more relaxed laid back positioning later on. And what about the length of time that someone breastfeeds? You know, doctors I've heard give recommendations, but um, as a lactation consultant, can you give it? Or just in general, what is your, you know, as long as they can, or what are your recommendations? So the initial recommendation is that babies don't need anything other than milk for the first six months of life. So babies don't need to be getting any water. Water has empty calories. Um, so if a baby's stomach is full of water, they're not going to drink milk and get the calories that they need. So babies only need milk and no supplemental water or food for the first six months. And then as of last Monday, the World Health Organization and the American Academy of Pediatrics are more on the same page now of saying that first six months should be exclusively human milk if possible, and then continued lactation up until two years, and beyond two years as mutually desired by both the parent and the baby. So prior to last week, the American Academy of Pediatrics had been saying up to one year, and now they've come up to two years and are more in line with the World Health Organization, which is That's great. Good. It's great, yeah, it's great for us because um, at least here in the U.S., because we're we're working with pediatricians, and if they're recommending that parents maybe stop lactation after a year, um, it can kind of it was kind of conflicting information with what what the WHO was recommending. So now, hopefully, as that trickles down, we'll have more uniform advice being given by pediatricians. Yeah. What about um, a woman's breastfeeding and then she becomes pregnant again? I guess the old wisdom was stop, but, you know, I've seen some people continue. Uh, what are your thoughts around that? Yeah, so a lot of people will continue into pregnancy. And I've really looked into the research, and I haven't seen a lot of research that shows that there's really any contraindication to it. The worry would be that the stimulation to the nipple and the release of the oxytocin could cause uterine contractions and maybe in the case of a high-risk pregnancy could possibly put the parent into labor or early labor and that may be the concern that people have but there's limited research showing that that could actually happen and many parents do actually continue 
to breastfeed, continue their lactation journey into pregnancy and, and it works out fine. And sometimes the baby will actually wean themselves in pregnancy because the milk flavor changes. Um, sometimes mm -hmm. the milk start, the quantity of milk starts to go down um, throughout the pregnancy. So sometimes weaning just happens naturally during pregnancy. And my wife said she saw this lady in the hospital where she had a, I guess a one and a half year old and a, you know, a newborn and they were, both, well, it wasn't a newborn. They were both feeding. Yeah, it was, it was close to a newborn. And they were fighting over the, you know, one was on one, one was on the other boob and their hands were like fighting. You know, they were like pushing each other away, which was hilarious. Oh they were both God. feeding, which was hilarious. That's so funny. That's wild. Yeah. I mean, we, and we call that tandem feeding. So when sometimes the baby who was feeding during the pregnancy, even if they weaned maybe midway through the pregnancy, may come back and want to continue feeding once, once their sibling is born. And that's fine too. The only thing we recommend is that the newborn gets like first dibs so that they're getting all their calories and their nutritional needs met prior to feeding the older child. Yeah. Are there, um, I don't know if it's legal or not, but are there breast milk banks or is that still like, uh, you know, not legal? Yeah, yeah, there are. And that has been a really great response during the formula shortage is that a lot of parents who have a surplus of human milk have been really interested in donating. So yeah, there's milk banks that there's official milk banks that you can donate your milk to. And they have a process of screening donors prior to sending the milk in, you'll get some blood work done. Um, you send your milk in frozen and then they pasteurize all the milk that comes in. And so it's, it's very safe. And then that, that is a great way for parents who have a surplus of milk or want to help families who, who maybe are facing the formula shortage or a lot of that donated milk goes to babies who are medically complex babies, maybe like in the neonatal ICU um, would receive human milk because it's really good nutrition um, for those babies and, and can really help them get better faster. So. Well, good. You know, in conclusion, what, what are some good resources for, uh, you know, for women that are expecting, um, obviously, I guess they should do this in advance of, uh, of them giving birth and being like, Oh, I got to figure this out in the moment. <laughs> okay. But um, you know, what are, what yeah. are some recommendations or resources you have? Yeah. So I would just find a class to take. There are several classes available. Um, I, I have a prenatal class that is available on my website, CassieReyes.com. Um, if people are looking for a prenatal class to take, I would also recommend that people just locate a lactation consultant who is near them. So that's something you can do to prepare because A, you may want to do a prenatal consult with them so that they can identify any possible challenges that you might have anatomy-wise or just based on your medical history prior to giving birth so you're ready for those challenges. And then you can see them after your baby's born and just already have their number and have a visit lined up once your baby's born to help you through those days like working through engorgement or painful latching or any other issues that might come up. You don't have to have issues or problems already um, to start working with a lactation consultant. So just finding a lactation consultant near you. I work with a great, uh, a great company called the Lactation Network, which does help get visits covered through insurance for families who are based in the U.S. And that could be an option if people are interested in getting 
visits covered through insurance and I are you able to do like a like a paid online program could you offer such a thing or you're only able to advise like in your state or you know what does it look like yeah my certification is actually an international certification so i can advise and i can work with families basically anywhere um, virtually and actually the course that i have available is self-paced online but we have weekly meetings where people can get on with me and ask any questions that they have come up as they're working through the program. Well, that's great. Yeah. So, uh, Kesty, where can people go to find out more about you and your work and um, engage with you if you have the time and the space? Where can they go? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the best place to find everything um, is my website. So CassieReyes.com. And then my YouTube channel is Cassie Reyes, but the videos are also linked at my website. So Either place um, on the website, they can also request visits. So if someone were to want to work with me virtually or if they're local to Maine, they could do a consult with me. Um, There's all the forms on there to request a visit and I'd be more than happy to hear from people. And and yeah, I think the best place is CassieReyes.com. Okay, and it's K-A-S-S-I and then R-E-Y-E-S, right? Yes. Okay, great. Cassie, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for the invitation. This is great. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.